I'm really excited about to just finish up the book of Romans, and I have it has been meaningful for me. I hope it's been meaningful for you. We're going to get into it today, right here, just now. Uh, I want to talk about some final thoughts. Uh, Paul's basically saying goodbye, and of course, this time when people were saying goodbye, they didn't, you know, he didn't sign it sincerely, Paul. Uh, all my love, Paul. He didn't do those things. It's all almost another whole chapter here. In fact, it is another chapter. But he's going to talk about some things that he wants to mention in wrapping up. He's going to talk about some important people in his life. He's going to talk about one final concern that he has uh, before signing off. Now, I'm not going to read through. Usually what I do is read through the entire passage, and then I come back and read portions of it again as we study it. I'm not going to do that today uh, for two reasons. One, for time's sake, because we're going to do the entire chapter today. And two, I'm not really sure I could pronounce all of the names uh, that are in the first part of the uh, book of, uh, or the 16th chapter here, the same time, two times in a row. And I know some of you will check up on me on that. And by the way, if any of you are here and you have a Greek name like Hermes or something, and I mispronounced your name, I apologize uh, ahead of time, okay? So let's talk, first of all, the first principle that we see here in the book of Romans chapter 16 is this. It, Paul gives some words of a personal greeting because people matter to God. People matter to God. I'm going to attempt to do Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. And you just follow along with me, all right? And away we go. Here we go. He says, I commit to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla, that should be Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, pretty impressive right there, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statues. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Trifenius Rex, and I don't even, let me try. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet these guys and the brothers who are with them. Greet these other guys and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I don't mean to make a light uh, of God's word. It's very important. Um, but frankly, I'm just not good at pronouncing all of those words. What's interesting, though, is there are 28 specific individuals who have had an impact on Paul's life and ministry. That's why he's giving them a shout-out. He doesn't forget them. If you were here last week, you remember that one of the principles Paul said was, hey, don't forget those who invest spiritually in your life. Don't forget them. And right here, he's modeling that. He's saying, these are the people who've had an incredible and an important impact in my life. They include, first, he mentions Phoebe, who's an important servant to the church at Centuria. He says she's a patron, and that means somebody with means. She's got a lot of money. 
And she's helped Paul and others financially. She's been a great blessing to the ministry of Christ because she's been so generous. And she apparently, the way he's writing this, she's apparently with the Romans now. So she's probably the person who actually brought this letter by hand to the Romans. So she was with Paul, uh, ministering with him and supporting him. And then as he stayed where he was at, he sent her to take the letter to the churches in Rome. By the way, if you're reading from the NIV, it uses the term deaconess rather than servant, like every other translation. This is really a bad translation for several reasons, okay? This Greek word diakonos, which can be translated in English either servant or office of deacon, the, the official office of deacon, uh, it appears 27 times in the New Testament. And the office seems to be only used three times in the context of the New Testament. The context here does not demand more than the fact that she was just a great servant of the church. And there's biblical principles and other writings in Timothy and Titus that would uh, preclude her from being a deaconess. So if you have an NIV Bible, scratch that out and write servant. All right? Now, while she was very important to the church and, and an incredible example to the entire body as a helper, the likelihood of her holding an official ecclesiastical position is incredibly minute. Uh, but let me just say, she was important. And the fact is, he talked about her first. Then he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. Now, they were mentioned five other times in the New Testament. They risked their necks for Paul, as he says here. We don't know exactly how that is, whether they uh, risked sneaking him out of one of the towns that he was ministering in or, or what they did, but they basically risked their very lives to support the ministry of Paul. He lived with them for a time, roughly 12 to 18 months, and they were among the original 70 disciples of Jesus. And they discipled Apollos, who was an early first century evangelist. Very important. Paul viewed them as a ministry couple. He viewed them as very, very important people. And by the way, in this culture, generally speaking, men owned their wives as property. Paul didn't insinuate that at all. He talked about Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, he mentions her first, probably for the very reason that they were both of equal value to God and to the ministry. They were working together as a team. The rest of the list are relative unknowns. We don't know virtually anything about most of these other people. You know why? Probably because they were just regular church members. But they are forever immortalized in God's word because of their ministry to Paul. Think about that. How would you like to be the guy Hermes, whose name gets written in a letter, who eventually gets uh, taken into the New Testament and is part of God's word for all of eternity? Folks, these people were called out by Paul because they were important. They ministered to him and to others. In this passage, there are at least five that we know are single. There are married couples. A third of them are women. There are rich and there are poor. They're at various locations. You see, the bottom line, folks, is people matter to God. And they matter to God and they matter to Paul. He's basically giving them an eternal shout-out. I mean, this is like the original Facebook, you know? He's giving them a shout-out because they had ministered to him and played an important part in his life. 
At the end of this list, Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, you know, we don't do that around here, and uh, I'm glad. Uh, I went on a mission trip uh, about 20 years ago to Bogota, Colombia, kind of a scary place. And uh, we got there, and, and actually in the airport, I, was, I got off the airplane, and I was walking with some other missionaries through the airport, and I noticed that children were starting to point to me. And they were talking, and they would talk to their parents, and they would point to me. And I, I was like, what, you know, what's going on? <laughs> it's kind of weird. I mean, I'm on a wanted poster somewhere. It was my big fear. And um, so I had the mission, one of the missionaries ask the, the kids, why are you guys pointing to this guy? And, and they go, Billy, Billy, he, he's Billy, the Power Ranger. And it kind of looked like the Blue Power Ranger at the time. So they all thought I was the Power Ranger. Uh, that, that happens to me a lot. But here's the point. When they, we went to our first church there, I walked in, and every single person started to kiss me. I thought, I really am famous, you know? And then I realized, wait a minute, they're kissing everybody else that walks in the door. They were literally kissing everybody with a holy kiss as they walked in the door. Now, I'm not suggesting we do this. In fact, I'm suggesting we don't do this. But I do agree that the church should be the place where we can show genuine and appropriate affection and love for one another, folks. We should be able to say to each other, we love, I love you. And we should be able to show it in appropriate ways. Here's what I mean about that. Uh, first of all, let me just talk to the men. Men, I know that in our culture, it may be really uh, macho and cool to not say those things. But your wife needs to hear it. Your children need to hear it. And listen, there's just nothing wrong with taking another guy by the hand, putting your hand on his shoulder and go, hey, man, I want you to know I love you. There's just nothing wrong with that. We should encourage that, okay? Especially because we have the same father and we are brothers if we are both Christians, and we should do that with everyone in an appropriate way. And I'm not going to go into a whole you know, thing about appropriateness. You guys know that. You guys know what is and isn't appropriate, I hope. And, uh, but, but we should be able to show and tell each other how much we mean to one another. Folks, if we can't love the people that are in the body of Christ, who can we love? Who can we love? We should be able to say it, and we should be able to show it in appropriate ways. Before Paul signs off, though, He wants to offer to the churches of Rome something else. He wants to give them one last important caution. Here he is telling them, hey, here are all the people that have meant a lot to me, as I told you to, you know, appreciate those who've meant something to you spiritually. And then he talks in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. It almost comes up like, oh, oh, and and before I totally sign off, one more thing I want to remind you of. One more thing I want to tell you. And here's what it is, starting in verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul says here, hey, listen, pay attention. Hey, one more thing, guys. Don't forget this. Listen up. Be watching for people who do two things in the church. One, they cause divisions. 
Or two, they create obstacles in doctrine and theology that are contrary to what you've been taught. He said, man, watch out for them. Keep a keen eye for them. And he says, avoid them. Now, now you, you might think to yourself, wow, when I come to church, I shouldn't want to avoid anybody, right? No, if you know somebody's causing divisions in the church, you go, mm, nope, not going there. And you go the other direction. He says, actually avoid them. He says, they serve themselves. They don't serve Christ. And they deceive the innocent or the naive. Now, let me just tell you something. I think when we give our lives to Christ, we put our faith and trust in Jesus to be our Savior, and the Holy Spirit comes into us, we get this thing called a heresy meter. Okay? Uh, you might not be a Bible scholar, but there are times when you hear things, and you hear somebody talking about something, and you go like this. Man, that, that just doesn't sound right. That, something about that is kind of weird. That doesn't sound right to me. Does that sound right to you? Right? That kind of goes off. That's your heresy meter. You see, the Spirit of God in you is going, nope, don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to that guy. He commends them again. He says, hey, listen, you guys are awesome in Rome. But he says, be wise to what is good. Be wise to what is good. I'll come back to your heresy meter in just a minute. He says, be wise about what is good and be innocent or naive to things that are evil. He's saying, listen, in experience, in life, listen, you just need to be experts in what's good. You need to practice being good and doing good all the time so that you become really, really, really experienced in doing good. And you should remain naive and innocent when it comes to things that are evil. Now, occasionally, you will hear either parents say this about raising children or, or people have this thought process in some kind of context. It's one of the deceptions of Satan. But it's this, hey, I can't really tell my kids to avoid something unless I've experienced it. You ever hear anybody say something like that? You know, I, I really can't, I really can't uh, uh, warn somebody about doing something if I don't really know what it's like to do it. Really? Think that through for a minute. So you're not going to tell your kids not to get hit by a car because you're playing in the street unless you go do it? I mean, that's just foolishness, folks. He's saying, listen, the, the things that you know are evil, just be, be naive to them. Don't even, don't even understand them. Don't even know why anybody would want to do them. Stay away from them. Avoid them. You don't have to experience something, folks, to know that it's bad. There are many things you know, we know are bad. And then he goes on to say, listen, Satan's going to lose in the end. Guys, be encouraged. Even though there will be people that come into the body of Christ and try to cause divisions, or there are people that will come in and try to skew the doctrine, skew the beliefs, don't worry. God's going to win in the end. Satan's going to be crushed. Now, what's some practical application for this? Well, here at Fellowship of Grace, we don't put people in positions of teaching others until we know what they believe and what they teach. If somebody comes to our church and they've been teaching a, a community group or a something, you know, some kind of group at another church for 25 years, we don't go, oh, you're experienced. Great, we'll put you as a leader of a community group here. We don't do that. And it's not because they don't have the capability or the ability. We just want to see what it is they teach, what it is that comes out of them. We, especially the pastors, although all of us are responsible for this, 
are to watch out and pay attention for these people that are going to come in and try to divide the body. And when we discover a doctrinal inconsistency, and by the way, I'm not talking about the things that are kind of on the peripheral, okay? I mean, not, not, not things that we can't be totally sure about. I'm talking about the core beliefs, the core values. When somebody comes in and begins to teach something uh, odd, unbiblical, and we discover that doctrinal inconsistency, I want you to know that your pastors don't ignore it. We don't allow it. We will confront it. We will do it in love. We will do it graciously. We will do it kindly. But we will confront it. And in the 12 years that Fellowship of Grace has been going on, there's been two or three people that have come into our body with the uh, full um, strategy to come in and turn this body to a different belief on something. And as soon as we find out, we have a conversation with them. Listen, if you believe differently about a core uh, thing that we do, I'll be glad to sit down and open God's word with you and we can study it together. We can, we can figure out how to uh, come to a, an agreement maybe, hopefully. But listen, the reason that Paul's saying be, be careful of these guys, watch out for them, is because they're poison to the body, folks. I think it was last week I watched a little bit of the... Uh, a little bit of the... Um, FBI director, I don't know if it was the director, but the FBI uh, agent uh, and his testimony in front of Congress. And uh, I find that stuff fascinating. I'm, it's part of my problem. Okay, but I was watching that stuff, and my wife walks into the room, and she's there for about literally 30 seconds. She goes, what are you watching? And I told her, she goes, why are you watching it? What, why are you doing this? And I'm like, I just, I just find it fascinating. I said, and we have come from kind of different backgrounds. I said, sweetheart, I've been in church business meetings that are a lot like this. She's like, what? Are you kidding me? I'm like, no, I really have seen this kind of stuff go on even in a church business meeting. She was blown away by it. And, and listen, uh, our church isn't like that. Our church is not like that at all. And we need to protect it from being torn apart by people that come in with different uh, motives. Because as Paul said, they're not, there, they're not here to... to minister to us or be ministered to, they're here with their own selfish motives. Then there's a few personal words uh, from Paul's co-workers in the faith. Verses 21 through 23. says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greet you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. And so you've got these guys that are ministering with Paul that are basically saying, hey, we wanted to say hi to. We want to say hi. Now, listen, I know some of you may read that and go, what? Wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote this. Okay, Paul is the author. This guy here is the scribe. Tertius, he, he wrote the letter. He's, he's scribing it. He's not authoring it. So don't panic. It's, it's written by Paul. And this is his helper who's actually writing out what Paul is speaking to him to write down. Then we see at the end that God has given access to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul kind of brings out kind of a doxology, kind of a, a prayer here at the end uh, for those in Rome. And he signs off this letter. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to strengthen you 
according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul does a little prayer, a little doxology here at the end of the letter. He kind of signs off with this. And he praises God and he gives him glory for a couple of things. First, that the gospel would give strength to the hearers. That those who have been saved by the good news of Jesus Christ would continue to draw strength from that. And then he praises God uh, because God has revealed through Jesus Christ that Gentiles could also be included in God's family. Uh, We studied through the book of Acts And we saw that this was an early church, uh, kind of an argument. Do Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians? And the answer uh, was absolutely not. And so Paul continues to just uh, thank God. If you remember, uh, the church in Jerusalem was mostly, not entirely, but mostly uh, Jewish believers. And the um, churches in Rome were mostly Gentiles. And so he's just saying, hey, listen, this was a mystery for ages, but now it's just become clear through Jesus Christ that we can all become a part of the family of God through Jesus. And he kind of signs off. And that is the entire book of Romans. Now, before we go today, I want to just go back and I want to review the entire book for a few minutes. Because, folks, this is, this is a book that should, should change us. It's a book that should mean something to us. It's a book that should uh, create thoughts in our minds and in our hearts that drive us and motivate us through life. I don't do this very often, uh, but as we do this, I want to quote Pastor Robert Deffenbaugh, who so wonderfully stated and summarized the key parts of the book of Romans. He wraps up the book and states it probably better and certainly more succinctly than I can. It would take me two more sermons to do it. And so I want to just use what he wrote as kind of a a definition of each part. And the first part, of course, is condemnation in chapters uh, 1 through the first uh, part of chapter 3. He says, Without grace, man is in a desperate situation. All men are sinners who have rejected and perverted the truth of God revealed to them. More knowledge simply brings greater guilt and greater condemnation. The Gentile pagan is guilty of rejecting the revelation of God in creation. He has chosen to worship the creature rather than the creator. The Jewish pagan is far more guilty, for although he knows the law of God and even teaches it to others, he fails to live by its standards. All are sinners, none is a God seeker, and thus all deserve eternal doom. If you remember as we read through the first two and a half chapters of Romans I felt like this. for several weeks we were going through that and I, and I just felt like the whole church was becoming a downer, man. It's like a downer to come to church because every week we were just hearing more and more about our incredible lostness, about our desperation, about our black hearts, how we are not righteous or good on our own, how we are far, far, far from God because we basically worship ourselves rather than the true God. Paul just... Uh, kind of beat it into us that it's important we understand we can never be good enough. We can never be good enough to earn something from God. 
That's really bad news, but it didn't stop there. The next part is the part of justification in the last half of chapter 3 through verse 5. Pastor Robert writes this. He says, The grace of God is revealed to man at his lowest moment. The righteousness which God requires and man cannot produce by his best efforts, God has provided through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. He alone has satisfied God's requirements of righteousness and perfection. He has suffered the punishment of God for our sins by his death, and he offers in place of our self-righteous endeavors his own righteousness. The justification which God offers man in Christ is by faith, not works, as the case has always been. Justification is peace with God, even in the midst of life's trials and tests. Just as one man sinned and thereby brought all who were his descendants into a state of sin, so one man, Jesus Christ, by his righteous life, death, and resurrection, justifies all who are in him. These were the chapters that talked about how uh, what Jesus did on the cross by giving his life, uh, by dying on the cross and paying that penalty, he made it possible for us to be called righteous. If you want to remember the word justification, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus had given us uh, the ability to be seen by God just as if we'd never sinned. We do sin, but God has taken that away through Jesus Christ if we put our faith and trust in him. Then chapter 6 through 8 talked about sanctification. Sanctification is the act of actually growing to be more like Jesus. Pastor Robert writes, The grace of God is not just needed for salvation, It is the grace of God which will help make us what we will be, what we should be. In chapter 6, Paul says that our practice, our practical Christian experience, must conform to our position in Christ and to our baptism. Although we should live holy lives, this is humanly impossible due to the weakness of the flesh and the power of sin. What we desire to do, we do not do, and what we despise, we seem to practice. At this point of human desperation, the grace of God is revealed and realized through the provision of the Holy Spirit who enables us to meet God's requirements for godly living. Now, we don't do that perfectly, but certainly the Holy Spirit helps us. What he's saying here is, yes, uh, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we are justified, we are saved for eternity. In that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He indwells us. He gives us that heresy meter. And he causes us uh, to really agonize over our sin now. And so as we live life, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us to become more like Christ. Will we ever perfect it on this uh, earth? No, we will not. But we certainly should be farther along now than we were when we first received Christ as our Savior if we're letting the Holy Spirit change our lives from the inside out. And it's not always about doing stuff, although sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just about yielding. It's about just saying, God, I, I'm, I'm, you're it. I'm going to do what you want instead of what I want. I'm just going to yield to you. Let you do in me what you want to do. The next part of the book or the letter, was about dispensation. And this is the act that God works in different ways in different parts of history. The pastor writes, the grace of God is defended in the matter of Jewish unbelief. How could God be gracious when the Jews to whom God had made eternal promises of blessing were turning in unbelief and the Gentiles were being saved? Since God is dealing with men according to grace, he is under no obligation to save every Jew, but only those whom he chooses. 
Those who demand justice will get exactly what they deserve, and those who reject the righteousness of God in Christ by trying to establish their own will get, will get what they insist upon. Although men are eternally doomed because God has not chosen them, they are equally lost because they have not chosen God. God's promises to Israel are a future certainty, for there is still a Jewish remnant with whom Israel's hope rests. Israel's hardening is neither total nor permanent. God has hardened the Jews to save the Gentiles. When his purpose for the Gentiles are realized, he will once again bring salvation and restoration to Israel. And we saw that in verses 9 through 11. And folks, this should, this should thrill us that God decided to include Gentiles in his plan. And it's always been his plan. But if you look at the way the majority of, of Gentiles uh, interacted with God in the Old Testament and the way believers do in the New Testament, wow, it's a big change. It's a big difference. And so we who are, I think, mostly Gentiles in here, non-Jewish background, we should be incredibly grateful for how God has saved us. And lastly, starting in verse 12, he talks about application, especially in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, The grace of God does not nullify human responsibility. In Romans 16, 26, Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. This obedience is our response to the biblical imperatives and injunctions found throughout the scriptures. This obedience is not our effort to do something for God, but our submission to God's activity through us. We are commanded to do certain things because God has given us the means, his Holy Spirit, to do them. We should read the Bible, pray, witness, and so on, because God has commanded it, and God will empower us to do it. I must also say that we can do these things in the power of the flesh and for no profit. The only reasonable response to the grace of God is submission and service. The grace of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, but it is also to be reflected in the life of the Christian. Christians are individually stewards of divine grace in that we each possess spiritual gifts, which we are to exercise for the building up of the body. The grace of God is reflected also in our human experience and relationships. The grace of God is to be reflected by our obedience to the law of the land and by our expression of the law of love. The law of love is also expressed by accepting the weaker brother as he is and by refraining from the exercise of any liberty which would impair his spiritual growth. In chapters 12 through 16, God was very uh, graphic in the way that he asks us to really live our lives in response to our salvation, in response to his presence in our lives. He starts this, out, starts this out in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by saying to be a living sacrifice. I give you the word picture of if we had a, an altar here, to just get up and lay down on it and just say, God, I am yours. I am, I am laying down on the altar saying everything I am, everything I have, everything I will ever be, every relationship I have, every article uh, of possessions that I have, everything that is in me, I simply give it to you. And I serve you with my life because you have saved me. Now that might seem really radical to some people. But how do you pay back the God of the universe for sending his son to die and pay for your salvation? It's just impossible. We, we can never outgive God. 
We can never appreciate him enough. Uh, and I'm not saying that to do that in, out of guilt. We should be doing that out of a, a sense of appreciation, out of a sense of love. Listen, it's a lot easier to love the people that love me than the people that hate me, right? And God loves us tremendously. It ought to be for us, especially those of us who've given our life to Jesus, it ought to be easy for us to love him, enough to be changed by him. My prayer, going through the book of Romans, was not so that you can put a notch on your Bible, that you've been through the whole book, it's not to just fill up a year of sermons. It wasn't so that we don't have to come up with ideas. So we just take the next verses. It's not any of that. We specifically chose to go through the book of Romans because we felt like the things that it teaches us should change us. It should change us. By the way, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never crossed that line of faith, you've never decided to give your life to Jesus, please don't leave here today without talking to one of us. Please don't leave here without talking to one of the pastors or, or to your friend that brought you. This week, two people have been led to Christ by people in our church. Very exciting stuff. I also found that two other people in our church have received Christ sometime uh, between the first of the year and now. And they're getting baptized next week too. Okay, God is working amongst us and God wants to use you folks. He does. We have to get this idea out of our heads that the, the ministers here are the paid professionals. We are the equippers. We are the prompters. We are the ones that are uh, trying to educate you and help you and encourage you and maybe give you one of those every once in a while. But you're the ministers. You're the ministers. You should be the ones whose lives are changed by these things. And it motivates you to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with your friends and neighbors and your family. I pray that as we've been through this entire book of Romans, that it will sear onto our minds and into our hearts and that we won't forget how lost we are without Christ, how good and perfect Christ is and how he sent his son Jesus to save us, that he wants to change us from the inside out, we should be appreciative of how God has included us as Gentiles in his worldwide plan. And then, folks, it should show in our behavior. People should be able to tell that there is something different about us because we follow Jesus. And by the way, if they can't tell, in fact, if they're surprised when they find out that you're a Christian, probably should think through that a little bit. Probably should think through that a little bit. Why is that the case? That's why we went through the book of Romans. And I pray that it has been as meaningful to you as it certainly has been uh, to me and the other pastors here who have uh, shared God's word with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for protecting this letter through the ages that we might hold it in our hands today, see it on a screen, and be able to read your words that you inspired to the Apostle Paul to write to the churches in Rome. Father, I do pray that we'll be changed by this book, by this letter, that it will help us to remember how much we really owe you, how much we really are indebted to you, how much we should appreciate and really just 
enjoy your love and your mercy and your grace. God, help us to never be complacent about how good you are to us. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, help them to know how far they are from you, and then help them to turn to Jesus to save them. Use us to help them. God, we are here for you. Use us in the way you want. We yield to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.